After spending seven years in the Bush administration, rising to press secretary, Dana Perino had become comfortable speaking on behalf of others, including the 43rd president. But as she transitioned into roles on Fox News after the White House, Dana had to develop her own voice. Who cared what I thought? I could tell you what President Bush thought and why he thought that or how he got to that decision. And I was very comfortable in that role. On the first episode of season two of The Strategist, Dana talks about how she always remembers to focus on the good news, how she deals with social media trolls, and how her career in country music is progressing. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. We're joined for today's episode by Dana Perino, former White House press secretary and now Fox News co-host of The Five, host of The Daily Briefing with Dana Perino, podcast co-host of I'll Tell You What, and she's a best-selling author, so you're pretty busy. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I'm honored to be here. I I love coming here to the Bush Center. Whenever you step in the front door, it's like, wow, this place is beautiful. Thank you for saying that. And doing such great work. Thank you. And our co-host is Hannah Abney. Your friend and VP of External Affairs. She's back again. Hannah, thank you for doing it again. Thank you for having me again, Andrew. So, Dana, you uh, recently, you're now a recording artist as well. We can oh add that to your gosh. resume. Yep. So, and think- a Dirks, a, not Dirks, a Dirks Bentley super fan, right? I, yeah, super fan. Also, I get to call him a friend now, too. Okay. But that's what happens if you stalk long enough. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think he's going to invite you to be on a song now that you've already proven your backup singer I don't know. Chops? I mean, once you have a number one song in the world, it's kind of like, I don't need to really do it again, I don't think. But Climb that mountain. It's pretty funny. So when I worked at the White House, um, well, let me go way back. When I was in college and thought I wanted to go into media, um, back then, if you wanted to get into TV, you had to start in radio. And I didn't want to have to do my radio experience after I graduated. So I got a job, part-time job, as a country music DJ, uh, working overnights in Pueblo, Colorado. And I, I didn't really, I had grown up on, in the West, but I hadn't really listened to country music when I was a teenager. I didn't really do that. So I was completely out of it. I, did, I introduced the first night a song by Tracy Lawrence. And I said, and, and here she is with her new song, Tracy Lawrence. And then, of course, Tracy Lawrence is a man. <laughs> and uh, That was a tricky first one yeah. you have to do. So fast forward. And um, during the years at the White House, I don't think I listened to any music at all. I didn't even have an iPod when we left. That was the technology at the time. No, I had nothing. I listened to NPR or whatever else was happening, you know, Rush Limbaugh or something so I could keep Grab up the on the news. And so when I left the White House, or when we all left the White House, I got an iPod, I guess it was. And I used to travel back and forth to New York a lot. And I just started downloading country music. And Dirk Bentley's song, Come a Little Closer, was out at the time. And so that's how I became a fan. Would you like to sing a little bit of that song? (laughs) (laughs) No, I do have the worst voice. But the the other song you're talking about is, um, I don't I'm blessed with having lots of ideas and not a lot of time to execute, however. So in 2016, the five went on a bus trip to go to the conventions 
RNC and DNC. And at one point in the back of the bus, Greg Gutfeld and I were sitting there and he was making me laugh so hard because he was just making up nonsense country songs about the five, about Fox News, about everything. And I, he just had me giggling so much. And I said, we should go to Nashville and record a song about the five and record it with a real recording artist and then release it for charity. So three years later, <laughs> it came true. We have a wonderful uh, executive producer of The Five called Megan Albano. She helped figure it out. We uh, teamed up with John Rich from Big and Rich, who is a wonderful person, a big fan of 43s as well. And we went to Nashville and in one take, he sang the song and then we sang the backup part. It's called Shut Up About Politics. <laughs> and it's not about shutting any particular person up. It was just about how politics has entered into everything, sports, music, theater, technology, everything is just too much. And so we have a song called Shut Up About Politics. We released it. And within two hours, it was number one on the country charts. And then that whole weekend, it was number one in the world, bigger than Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber. It was astounding. That's amazing. It was amazing. And all the proceeds go to Folds of Honor. Um, so we're pretty proud of it. 99 cents. You can download it. Well, Folds of Honor does great work. We've done incredible we've, work. We're familiar with their work pretty well. And they're just such great such a great organization. So it's pretty fun. I have a question for you off of that though. I mean, you're right. Politics isn't absolutely everything. You cannot get away from it. And we talk about that a lot too. I mean, even when you're like going through your Instagram stories, it's just permeates every bit of it. It's in your life, obviously multiple times a day. How do you get away from politics and focus on the things? I actually feel a little, a lot better than I did even from a few years ago, because I've really embodied this idea that politics is what I do. It is not who I am. And I have carved off my weekends and my evenings when I'm not working, but uh, because like, I don't go to dinner to talk about politics with people unless I agree with them. Now that's going to sound like, oh, that's not very fair and balanced of you, but I argue all day long. And so my, in my personal life, I just pretty much don't. I have a, a rule that I wrote about in the in the Jasper book, which is um, no politics at the dog park. That's a safe place for me. Dog and if dog. and even people that want to talk to me about politics at the dog park, I'm like, mm, sorry, I don't talk politics at the dog park. I have a policy. And then they laugh about it and they move on. And I also, um, I care a lot less about social media than I did in 2016. I was really attacked by the Russians, even though I didn't know it was Russians at the time. I remember actually coming here to the Bush Center right before the 2016 election. I can't remember what I was doing. And uh, I got a chance to see President Bush and he said, how are you doing? And I told him I had the worst professional summer of my life, you know, being attacked. And I was really kind of in the fetal position under my desk. And even like my husband would say, how can I help you? I'm like, there's, there's nothing you can do. And it gave me a big appreciation for what parents are going through when their children are um, consumed with their phone. Because you don't know what's being said. And it's so demoralizing. I was a grown woman. I'd been the White House press secretary. Like, how could this affect me so much? And I remember President Bush saying, why didn't you call me? Like, well, really, imagine if I had called President Bush and said, sir, people are being really mean to me on Twitter. <laughs> he would have said, get off Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he's not even on it. Yeah. Right? I mean, and, like, and that not sounds on it. easy. And actually, it is easy. So once you step away from it, or somebody gave me a tip to only have mentions from people that you follow. And Eric Schmidt of Google actually pulled me aside um, 
at one point in 2017, as I was t explaining what it was like to be one of the people that was targeted by these Russian bots, but I didn't know they were Russian at the time. I just said, it's overwhelming. And he pulled me aside. He said, Dana, these are not real people. And he explained to me how the whole system worked in St. Petersburg. And I don't know, it just gave me an ability to say it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. No. So I, I, it's weird to say that as much as politics is permeating everything, for me, it's probably less a part of my life than in the previous elections that I've covered for Fox. Was it similar to how you regrouped after you left the White House, taking a breath, stepping away from it? No, not really. I mean, I remember the day that we left Andrews Air Force Base and Peter and I left to go on the trip to Africa. I leaned my head back against the seat and I said, nothing I do for the rest of my life will ever be that important or that hard. And it's really true. When I make a comment now, I'm not going to start a war. Um, I also have a great appreciation for what public servants go through. And I want to support them no matter what party they're from. If you're willing to put yourself out there and run for office and try to do the right thing, I try to be supportive. Yeah. Okay. Talk to us about Mercy Ships. You're Mercy Ships. You talked about a little bit when you left the White House. So interesting about Mercy Ships, there's actually a Bush connection there too. Okay, so obviously President Bush and Mrs. Bush were um, amazing leaders when it came to Africa. I got to go to Africa with them in February of 2008. And in typical 43 fashion, we did five countries in seven days. I got my first migraine. I couldn't even go to the um, Kigali event because I had to stay on the plane and get two liters of fluid oh, pumped into my arm. And so I didn't get to go to the event. And I've been sad about not making it to Rwanda ever since. Um, given the statistics about PEPFAR so many times at the podium that I thought I understood Africa. And then I was just totally blown away when I went there. And I came back and I said, Peter, we need to go for six months after the White House. <laughs> and he said, how about six weeks? So we did six weeks. Compromise. And yes, and we did a PEPFAR site that's um, in Fishhook, South Africa. And Peter and I just had this amazing time. And it, it, that did help us um, reset our priorities and our hearts and to reconnect uh, as a couple as well, um, because we're so blessed here in America. And you can get caught up in what about me? What am I going to do after the White House? And just being able to have a bigger worldview after I left was great. Fast forward, Mercy Ships asked me through my Speakers Bureau if I would come to Dallas and moderate a conversation between the president and Mrs. Bush um, in front of their dinner group. So I said, well, sure, that sounds great. So Peter and I were coming down here. Now, prior to that, I had joined the One Campaign's Women Advisory Board, and I had gone to several countries with them. I had also been on the Broadcasting Board of Governors under President Obama, and I'd gone to Africa on behalf of that organization as well, trying to increase the amount of content uh, for women in particular in Africa, because we found that men will definitely listen to the radio for news and sports, but women will listen if it's about health and their kids. So anyway, it was just a little bit of an effort to do that. So at the dinner, right before the Q&A with the president and Mrs. Bush, I'm sitting there and somebody says, well, why did you get interested in Africa? So I'm telling them this whole story that I'm telling you. And then I said, and just a few months ago, I got to go to Sierra Leone. And I went to this place called the Aberdeen Clinic. And it was started by a Scottish heiress and it's so amazing. They were doing fistula surgeries there. And the day I was there, they were teaching the women there how to count to 10. And the lady next to me said, 
Oh, she's not a Scottish heiress. Her name is Anne Glogue, and she's sitting right behind you. This is a self-made businesswoman in Scotland um, who was a burn unit nurse for 20 years, but then she and her brothers started a busing service in the UK when Margaret Thatcher deregulated the um, transportation sector, and they became very successful. And as the company expanded, she took Africa. And when she got there, she said, oh, this will never do. So she started doing all of this philanthropy there. And that's how I ended up talking to her. And I said to Peter, we have to go see Mercy Ships for ourselves. So that's how we got involved. And it's a surgical hospital ship. They um, do the West Coast of Africa. That night, they were kicking off a capital campaign for a brand new ship because they, they usually retrofit an old ship and everybody makes do. But now they have this beautiful new ship that should be available in the next 18 months and they'll be able to serve so many more people. It's so awesome. I remember your pictures from that trip and they're just incredible. Well, and I have to say Fox News has been incredibly supportive. Um, now, Peter, my husband, he's not a professional photographer or videographer in, by any means, but he's very enthusiastic and Fox would send us with the latest equipment and then Peter would get his cargo pants on and everything. And he, <laughs> so all that video that you see, that was his. Wow. He did all of that. And then we would do some interviews and I came back and then the young producers would be so excited. They would edit the packages together and management, like Suzanne Scott, our, our CEO now, um, before that she had a different job, but very enthusiastic about airing these pieces on Fox News multiple times. So I've gone twice um, and I usually go after an election year. So I went in 2013, March of 2013 and March of 2017. So it looks like I have to go again, March of 2021. Yes, I'll I think go. so. Another thing that was important to you is the Minute Mentoring project that you worked on. That's Is that another... Well, that you started. Yeah, that you started. Yeah, so when I just... I learned something when I left the White House that um, every call you get to do something, you think that's going to be the last call you ever get because you think everyone's going to forget about you. And it's not true, but what you end up doing is taking on everything. So I was spread extremely thin, but I felt a responsibility to accept any invitation from women, especially working in Washington, who wanted to um, get some advice for how they could advance their careers. So I went to this Bipartisan Women's Congressional Staff Association. That's the name of the group. Terrible name. But anyway, 80 people showed up, Republicans and Democrats. They were all there. And I tried to give them my best piece of, pieces of advice all in one speech. And then I did a photo line about 80 people. So let's say, I would say 62 of them asked me if I could get together for a coffee or lunch. And I was absolutely overwhelmed. I'm like, I can't go to, co I don't even have time to go to the bathroom. I, I don't have time to coffee with everyone, but I felt this obligation. So my girlfriend, Jamie Zweibach, who also worked in the Bush administration and at the Homeland Security Department and Justice Department, we were walking back and I said, wouldn't it be great if we could figure out a way to do mentoring, but like speed dating? Because what I've found is that young women in particular, they all have the same questions. It's the same type of question over and over again. And I don't have all the answers. And in fact, when we do a minute mentoring event now, I feel like I learn just as much as anybody else about time management or asking for a raise, negotiating, um, dealing with you know sexual harassment at the workplace, all of those things. Um, so yeah, we have minute mentoring. And we recently did a joint event with WeWork. Oh, cool. And that was in Washington, D.C. And Lauren Fritz is a good friend of mine. She actually grew up here in Dallas. Um, but she has a 
top position at, at WeWork in communications. And so she helped organize that. It's a very, it's a good natural fit because they have really ambitious uh, clients, I guess they call them, that uh, have rent office space from them. And so we did this event and we're hoping to figure out a way to expand it because I have limited time. Sure. But it's a really, it's a really good program. And if you go to minutementoring.org, there's a guide as to how you can host your own event. When you work on those projects, does that, does it re-energize you? Does that really, yes. that oh my you gosh. Going? And in fact, we did one at Fox 18 months ago and I still have people telling me it was the most important day of their careers there or when could they have it again? I, one thing I did when I did the Fox one is I expanded it to not be just for women, but for the, for men too. Young men need it as well. And I, have thought about how do you expand it because they need help as well and they always want to come and they could use some advice. And I thought, well, no one's stopping anybody else from starting a minute mentoring for men. I don't have to do that as well. I mean, <laughs> right. I, I'm happy to have them come to my events too, but it is different. And both genders will ask different questions if they're in a mixed group. They just will. Sure. So I am going to continue minute mentoring to the extent that I can. I just feel like I wish I had an extra four hours in the day. Maybe six. I'll take it <laughs> if you have it to give. I really love the title of your of your first book, the and the good news is because everyone thinks of thinks of the news, they think of anchors and reporters just on TV, just talking about the about what's wrong in the world. And so you came out with just this optimistic message, and that that really resonates with us because the Bush we think of the Bush Institute as a really optimistic place. Where do you draw that optimism from? I think probably from. My upbringing, um, my grandfather in particular, a rancher from Wyoming, always woke up on the sunny side of the bed. Um, but it's funny that, you know, that the, the title has a couple of different meanings. So, and the good news is, in one way, was about um, my life. I talk about in the book how I've always been a planner, right? Firstborn daughters, look out, it's a disaster, worry about everything. Um, are you firstborn daughter? Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, you can always tell a crowd, like in a WeWork event or at the minute mentoring event, I'm like, who here? And they all like, they raise their hand because they know. <laughs> and fathers know what it's like to have a firstborn daughter. Anyway, um, I tried to plan everything out. And when I finally wrote the book, I looked back because people would say, how do I get to become White House press secretary? I'm like, well, first you have to start as a country music DJ. <laughs> then it Step all works one. out. But the reason I think that the title really spoke to me about my life is that looking back, none of my plans actually worked out. And that was the good news, right? That you don't have to worry about it, that you can turn it over to God and you can work hard and be prepared and open to risk. And the good news is that things will work out the way that they're supposed to. But the other reason is because when I started as a press secretary on Capitol Hill, way back when, Holly Probst was my chief of staff for Congressman Dan Schaefer. And I was learning how to be a press secretary. And press secretaries never go in to the boss and say, I have the best news. You just won't believe how great your coverage is going to be on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow. You are going to love it. No one ever, why would you go see the boss about something good? So she says, when you see the congressman and you have either difficult or bad news to deliver, always leave on a high note. So you always have to find a reason to say, and the good news is. So... I got into that habit. So you might say, well, the good news is we were able to get Andy Card on the phone with the reporter and you know his quote will be in the story. Or, and the good news is 
there's a big press conference happening tomorrow, so this won't even be an issue tomorrow. Whatever it might be, even if you have to really stretch, you know, and the good news is it's chicken taco day at the White House, whatever it might be, you just have to have something. Um, and then from a mentoring standpoint, people don't want to work with complainers or negativity. There's just not, there's too much competition out there. And if you want to hold yourself back, your negativity is, is the way to do it. That's great. Great workplace advice. It really is. I have wondered so many times, I can't believe I've never actually asked you this, what it is like going from the White House podium to being on the other side of the equation it's really to where hard. you're doing the interviews and well, making the news. It, well, it didn't even really start out that way, right? So when I first left, I had a PR firm and I was doing all of those things. I spread too thin. But then the thing I'd like to most to do during the day was um, the hits I did on Fox News. I remember Marlon Fitzwater, who was press secretary to Reagan and 41, he said to me, look, just figure out what you'd like to do and the money will work itself out. Because I was spread so thin and Charles Krauthammer also gave me similar advice. He said, I don't see how somebody can do both things, like have clients and be an analyst. And he said, you'll have a lot more fun being an analyst. You'll probably make more money if you do PR, but I don't see how you can do both. Now, some people do both and it works for them, but it was pretty clear to me early on, it was not going to work for me. When I started doing hits on Fox, I had never once said my personal opinion in public. Who cared what I thought? I could tell you what President Bush thought and why he thought that or how he got to that decision. And I was very comfortable in that role. And for the first, frankly, two years after the White House, when the next administration was quite um, critical of President Bush, I was always the one who was the, still the spokesperson on air. And I loved that role. That was comfortable for me. I knew what I was doing. Then I started doing the five. And I remember Greg Gutfeld at one point was like, no, what do you think? <laughs> and I think it was about legalization of marijuana. And I said, I remember I had a moment. I was said, uh, oh, um, uh, I... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Right. And I really credit him, uh, Suzanne Scott, even Roger Ailes, others like being patient enough with me to let me figure out a way to then be comfortable expressing my opinion on my own. It took a while. It was a, quite a transition actually to be, go from speaking on someone else's behalf for so long than to speaking for yourself. It has, has to also make you just feel kind of vulnerable. Well, I'm super cautious, right? Because I, I, I I'm a cautious speaker. I don't want to offend anybody. Even last night, I said something on Tucker Carlson's show that I wish I hadn't, even though it's true. But it was about Bill de Blasio. And in New York State right now, Donald Trump is more popular than Bill de Blasio. Really? Oh, yeah. And I said something like, well, look, look Dislike of Donald Trump in a liberal state is a given. So think of how much the liberals must actually hate de Blasio for him to be less popular than Donald Trump. And then I kind of felt bad because I was like, oh, gosh, you know. If you, but anyway, I do live in the city and it's crap. But I don't like to say <laughs> that stuff out loud. And then you don't want to be boring on air. But I noticed, like, if I'm just not myself, I can't do it. So the five has been incredible to allow me this room to run. And I remember almost like to the day... When I finally realized I'm never going back to being a spokesperson at the White House. I'm never going back to having PR clients that are going to be offended if I said something bad about Bill de Blasio. So it was so freeing 
And I think that also comes down to what I was saying earlier about not worrying about politics all the time. Like, I don't care. And then what about when you added the second show? So that was pretty exciting because after the 2016 election, I was, I really did a, (laughs) well, I feel like I'm in therapy, but um, (laughs) Hannah has that effect. on. After the 2016 election, I was thinking, do I want to do this again? Like, what should I do? Like, is this my highest and best use? Should I do more in Africa? Should I do more with mentoring? Should I, whatever. Um, I was exhausted after the 2016 election, emotionally, physically, physically, for sure. Could we work so hard? Um, and my husband, as you know, Peter, he's 18 years older than me. And I thought, gosh, you know, maybe this is the time, a nice transition, finish out this contract. And then maybe we'll go live in South Carolina and it'll be great. And the way the holiday worked that year, I had nine or 10 days off in a row because of the way the holidays were and my time off. And so I get down there and I played tennis once a day. I went on five mile walks. I got naps. I read books. I went to dinner with friends. I had coffee. I got my nails done. And on the fifth day, I came downstairs to go to dinner and I said, I can't do this. Like, I just needed a break. I didn't need to change careers. So, um, I'm sorry, your question was... How, what was it like getting the second show? Oh, getting the second show. So I decided to stay. But then I realized I'm, I'm not quite busy enough because during an election year... I'm working nights and weekends and everything. But then when there's not that, and I only had the five and then the podcast was like, well, maybe something else to do. And then they asked me, would you be interested in taking over the two o'clock show, which is a news hour. And what's so interesting is that when I decided not to stay in local news and leave graduate school and go back to Colorado, and then I decided to take the job in Washington working for a congressman, I said, I had, I had narrow horizons. I thought, now I'll never get to work in television. Now I'll never get to be in news. And here you and are. The, and the good news is, right? It all like worked out. It, 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 yeah. So I really love it. My days are full though. I just don't have, a, I don't have much time to breathe. There, I get up at 5.30. I start reading. I take a break from eight to nine for some sort of ac- uh, exercise. And then as soon as two o'clock ends, I have a quick meeting with my show the three, at 3 p.m. Eastern, quick meeting with my team. And then I got to prepare for the five. Is it hard to transition from a show where you where you are the host and the centerpiece to an ensemble cast? Is no, that, I, is that no, tough? I love the ensemble. I, yeah, look, we the, the five has been number one in its time slot every day since it started. It was in the top five shows of all cable. Um, it's kind of inexplicable in some ways. Uh, we're about to have our eighth anniversary. Did you see that coming? No, we were told that show was going to be six weeks temporary. And Gre- Gutfeld and I are the only two people that were there from the beginning. Um, but I, I really love it. So I kind of have the best of both worlds. I have to pinch myself a little bit. Sometimes I feel like on the two o'clock show, I worry that it's too newsy and will be boring. And so on the five o'clock show, but what if I say something on five o'clock show that will make somebody think that they don't want to come on the two o'clock show and blah, blah. like, I overthink that a little bit, but that's that firstborn daughter kind of thing. Oh, it's constant. It's the planner. So we've come this far. And maybe you need to have my parents adopt an older sister. <laughs> <laughs> Call them up. Let, let us right. know what they, what they say is, uh, we've come this far. We have, we've hardly talked about America's dog, Jasper. Oh, Jasper. You know, you look around, you don't see a whole lot of Hungarian Vizlas walking around, uh, on walks with their owners. I don't know. Do you in New York? Yeah. Oh, they're, so, they're very popular right oh, now. Oh, interesting. They're I popular did not know now. That. Um, 
Although Instagram is probably distorting my view, but in New York, there's a lot of of vishlas. Down here, we're we're big in the in the doodle craze. I think in Texas, yes, people doodles are five. Dog people love their dogs. The reason he's called America's dog is not because I'm arrogant and say that oh he's the best dog in America. It's because one night on this show called Red Eye, which I'm sure you never watched. No, I have. Did you, did you watch Red Eye? Oh, R.I.P. Red Eye. That was a great show. That that, that show actually probably more than anything else helped me come out of my shell because it was on at three a.m. Like I thought, no one's watching. I remember one night. On that show, I said, oh my God, it's on YouTube. And Bill Schultz, who was on at the time, he said, what if 43 were watching you right now? And I started laughing so hard, but then I started crying (laughs) on the show because I thought, what if he is? I'd be so mortified and embarrassed (laughs) if he was watching this. Um, Safe to say. So on that show, they were like, it was about this woman who was mad because a paparazzi was following her around and taking pictures of her little dog. And she was like, don't take any more pictures of my dog. And I said, I'm not like that. I think people can take pictures of my dog all they want. In fact, I will take the pictures for them if they can't have a dog. I will share Jasper with everyone. He can be America's dog. So that's how that happened. So he's um he's seven and he has certainly grown up with um, Fox. And uh, it's pretty funny. Well, the only possession that I care about in my life is... President Bush painted a portrait of Jasper when he was a puppy. Oh. And truly, it's the most treasured thing in my life. I, so P- Peter says, I know, I know. Grab the painting. <laughs> <laughs> where, where is it hung in your home? Um, in the living room. It's like when you walk into, well, home, you know, apartment, city, living. Um, we walk in and then it's just, there it is. Spot of honor. Yeah. So I think one of my favorite pictures that you've ever posted or I don't know, maybe Peter told me about this, but because I do want to ask, I do want you to tell us your love story and meeting okay. on the airplane. It's my favorite um, meet cute of all time um, is the picture of Peter on his motorcycle with Jasper in the sidecar. Yeah, with those are both the best. of them with their goggles on. And I mean, it just <laughs> makes me laugh. It's the cutest thing. People love it. So um, my husband loves motorcycles and I, I'm fine with it, but like, I don't have a lot of time to be motorcycling around. And um, he bought a 1986 cream colored Harley that was a police car and it came with the sidecar. And so, yeah, Jasper knows he loves, Jasper loves to ride. He knows he can't ride if he doesn't wear his doggles. That's not a word I came up with. That's the brand. <laughs> he knows he has to wear them. And it's so interesting. Like he knows that people are looking and laughing, pointing that like, kids love it. And, it's One time, Peter, for a, for a costume contest on the 4th of July, Peter dressed up as Batman and Jasper as Robin <laughs> in Palmetto Bluff, actually. And we won first prize, of course. But we, we won, like, first prize three years in a row. And I was like, okay, we got to stop. Like, obviously. It's like the women's soccer team against Thailand. It's like, enough. <laughs> let them up. Let them up. Mercy. I'm still laughing about doggles. That's, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's the name. So, yeah, the, the Harley, um, it's, it's great. And, and actually, it's pretty funny. With Peter's traveling... Let's say I'm walking Jasper on the street, and if he hears a Harley, because that obviously that very distinctive, patented sound, he'll look like, "Is that my dad? Is that my dad?" That's really cute. Okay, tell us how you met him. Um, One of my pieces of advice that I, my favorite piece of advice in the book, um, and that I use at Minute Mentoring all the time, is choosing to be loved is not a career limiting decision. Uh, I mean, a lot of young people who are waiting till they get this job or this promotion or this thing, and then they'll find somebody. It's so interesting. I'm reading a book called The Defining Decade. I highly recommend it. It's by a woman named Dr. Meg Jay. And it's about how your 20s are so important and how these young people think that they're going to 
all these things that are like blowing things off in their 20s, but they think in their head that between the ages of 31 and 34, everything's going to happen. It's like, it's not true. It never works out that way. So um, I was having kind of a quarter life crisis as people do um, at 25. I was working on Capitol Hill. I was, I could do my job with my eyes closed. I wasn't thrilled with the Republican leadership at the time. That was in the middle of the Lewinsky scandal um, and impeachment. Uh, anyway, fast forward, I had to go on a business trip where I took the congressman around to the editorial boards in Colorado. And then I had to fly back and I almost missed the flight. And Peter almost took an earlier one, but it just so happened we were both on that flight, assigned seats next to each other, seat 13A and C on American, actually. He always tells me there's no B because it's American, whatever. So we just ended, and we just hit it off. We ended up talking. Um, and I remember looking out the window and saying, okay, Lord, I know I asked you to help me find someone, but he lives in England. He's 18 years older than me. He could be an axe murderer. Did I mention he lives in England? And I really do think it was, well, it was love at first sight. I don't think it was. It was. And then I moved there nine months later and we've been together 22 years. It's amazing. Yeah. And he, and you have, um, Stepchildren and grand- yes, grandchildren. Um, he has two children from his first marriage, uh, Kelly and Barry. And frankly, they're not that much younger than me. Um, Barry is, uh, I call Peter and Barry the happy couple whenever they're around. They're just so, so happy. And um, yeah, it's a, a, a sweet relationship. And I when, uh, just going back to the career thing, I, I, I don't think I could have done any of this without him. You know, after 9-11, we, well, we were living in San Diego when 9-11 happened. And Mindy Tucker who um, was an amazing communications person for President Bush on his re-election campaign for governor, then was working for Ashcroft at the Justice Department. She called me and asked me if I'd be willing to move back to D.C. because they needed another spokesperson. And that's how I returned to Washington. And But we were living in San Diego. And who doesn't want to live in San Diego? It's fabulous. But Peter said, leave it with me. And I left, I think, a week later. And he packed up the house and moved to D.C. And then when we were living in D.C., and I got the uh, the request to come up to New York. I was like, living in New York, and it's hard because it's so much more expensive, and it's a real mental shift. And he said, I got it all. Just focus on that. And he did all the moving and all of that stuff. So um, there's also a, p- a pretty funny story um, about his support for me. <laughs> uh, I don't even know if President Bush will remember this. I think he probably would. I know Dan Bartlett will remember it. <laughs> I was brand new deputy press secretary, and I don't even think – that President Bush knew my name, really. And Bartlett asked me, could I sit in on this interview that was set up with David Ignatius? And I s- said, sure. Like, what do I have to do? He said, well, I'm going to come to the pre-brief in the Oval Office. I'll do all the setup. And you just have to sit there, tell me, like, call it time when it's over, and then tell me everything that happened. Like, okay, I, I've done that before. I can do that. So I get to the Oval Office at the time. And then as Bartlett's explaining to the president what's going to happen, the president says, wait, I'm not doing an interview with him. And Bartlett says, no, yes, we are. Remember, it was going to do the interview. And he's like, no, I'll, I said I'd talk to him. I'm not doing an interview with him. It's like, Bartlett's like, yeah, but he just got back from Iran. It's like, yes, but I don't want to do an interview because then he'll write about it and it will look like I'm trying to negotiate with the Iranians through David Ignatius. And I'm not going to do that. So I'm, I'm not doing it. And therefore, she doesn't need to be here. And he looked at me and like tilted his head, like get out of the Oval Office. <laughs> so I... I just sort of like 
slinked out of the Oval Office and I went back to the, you know, the slope down to the press secretary's office and they had those pocket doors at the time. So I closed the pocket door and I called Peter and I was kind of tearful. And he's like, what happened? I said, I just got kicked out of the Oval Office. And he said, why? And I told him the story and he said, well, just think you know, for the rest of your life, you can say, I've been kicked out of better places than this. <laughs> <laughs> he's such a good guy. Yeah. He's really good. Very wise. And he's been great for all of my girlfriends that come over and need advice, not just girlfriends, but anyone who needs advice, Peter is super wise and was a huge fan of the president. So, Life never quite happens the way you expect. But... Not at all. <laughs> I remember on, the, on his book tour, I was, we were just talking about things that had happened in the administration. And I said, do you remember when you kicked me out of the Oval Office? He's like, I never kicked you out of the Oval Office. <laughs> like, like, yes, you did, actually. <laughs> he went 100%. I remember and he yeah. said, are you still upset about that? I'm like, a little, actually. <laughs> so one last question. We like to put people on the spot a little bit. You're on a microphone all the time. It feels, probably feels like 24-7. But what's the one question that you never get asked that you wish you would? So I listened to Strategist. So I kind of had an idea this was coming. Which we thank I've been for. really upset with myself because I can't think of a good answer. Because <laughs> I feel like there are things that I could say that would make me sound so awful. Like, could we leave you alone for an hour? Like, nobody ever asked me, could we leave you alone for an hour? <laughs> I, As the mother of three young sons, I think that is a totally valid thing for, for you to want to no, But does anyone you. ever ask you, no. can we leave you alone for I an hour? I <laughs> would love if someone asked me that question. <laughs> I know. I, today, on, the, on, the, on my way here, um, I was reading three months worth of columns from written by Neil Ferguson and Ian Bremmer. And I felt so smart at the end of it. And I thought, oh, wow, if I just had two hours where I could read every day, I'd feel so much smarter. Uh, my husband said I should, I should frame it this way. that um, Would you accept a 100% pay rise? Like, now, that's a question I wish somebody would ask. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I can't ask I you that one. I think it's kind of strange. You know, um, but sometimes on... Well, because we, the five's been on eight years, we do all these shows where the, on Fan Mail Friday, I feel like... I feel like there's nothing... You've been asked every question. Possible. I think people know like everything about me. Um, they know I go to bed early. They know... Just, like My life's kind of an, an open book. Um, and I just really love our fans. Uh, they're, they're wonderful and everywhere and hilarious. And they think they're our friends, which is really good. Let me pose it slightly differently. What is something that people are not talking about that you think they should be? Well... A year ago, when I was asked a similar question, um, I had just come from an event um, about human sex trafficking. It is shocking, the numbers. I know that the Bush Center is is well aware of it, but I don't know if people are aware just like how uh, pervasive it is. And there's a young woman who works in the Bush administration who is affiliated with a group who is doing work with um, the NFL. Oh, Michelle Perrazzo. Michelle Perrazzo. Yeah. So she helped organize something with us so that on the two o'clock show, I was able to interview um, some NFL uh, football stars. We did some an event with Major League Baseball. I, I think that that is that is an issue. I feel like here's the thing I would ask everybody just to remember. This goes back to the Bible, so it's not like it's a, like any unique thing, but it is something you have to remind yourself over and over again is that, um, especially in the age of social media where everybody's life looks perfect, like everyone's got something going on. Everyone suffers. Everyone's, you know, in, in, in most, for most people, 99% of people, they're trying their best and, and life is pretty hard. We have it so good here in America. Um, 
we have the power to fix a lot of things. I don't know if we have the will to, but we, we, we can fix a lot of the problems uh, that we have right now in, in our country, whether it be homelessness or mental illness. We, I, I call it like we did the surge. You know, we can, we can fix a lot of these things and um, being optimistic about solving them, I think is probably what I wish people would focus on a little bit more. Well, it's a perfect last word. Dana, thank you so much for the time you spent here with us today. Thank you. Also tonight, moderating the Highland Capital Lecture with, with Ian Fer, uh, Neil Ferguson and Ian Brummer. Um, Dana, again, thank you so much. Be sure to listen to her on her podcast, Perino and Steyerwalt. I'll tell you what, catch on on the 5, which is at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on Fox News. The Daily Briefing at 2 Eastern, 1 Central. Read her books. Am I missing anything? Oh, follow Jasper. Follow follow me on Instagram for Jasper pictures. (laughs) There it is. At Dana Perino. Yes. There it is. Dana, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.